0: Personal note that you might include in your prayers for South Africa. By God's mercy, over the last few years, He has given us the opportunity to be able to preach in South Africa. In fact, I have the privilege of preaching there every week on radio. And you might pray for grace to you, South Africa. There uh, is a government radio network that reaches every city of South Africa, <clears throat> and on that government network, there are nine hours of English radio. And by God's providence, we have an hour and a half of that nine hours every week for the teaching of God's Word. And recently, uh, some of our men were in South Africa and they would like to expand that and get us on there not just three times a week, but every day of the week. So you can pray that the Lord will make that possible. It's kind of an interesting curiosity because they're is apparently some kind of rule in South Africa that only South Africans can be on the radio. But I am an exception to that, and what is curious about it is that I don't belong to any of the racial factions of South Africa, and that makes me sort of acceptable to everybody. And so it's become a common ground for the Christians to listen to the teaching of God's Word through grace to you in South Africa. So you can pray for that ongoing ministry. I also want to say that Uh, Thank you for your prayers and the time that I was traveling. We had uh, radio rallies and pastors' conferences uh, over the last couple of weeks all across America. We were in, uh, let's see, I was in Colorado Springs, Chicago, Memphis, Chattanooga, Atlanta, Little Rock, Springdale, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and then home. And uh, we had a tremendous time, probably ministered to nearly 3,000 pastors. And thousands of people at radio rallies told about the college and the seminary and everything that God is doing. And there was a tremendous amount of interest for which we're very, very grateful. And I thank you for your prayers. I think the Lord really used that time in a special way. One other thing I want to mention, I got a call from Mark Schubert, our soccer coach, and he informed me that our soccer team won the NCAA. So. Uh, they're going to bring us back another banner. They are national champions again, and they'll be in today when you see them. We hope they would arrive for chapel, but their flight was delayed a little bit, and they had the tough last two games in the semifinals. They won an overtime 3-2, to two, and they won the final one to nothing. So it must have been some exciting times when you see them. You thank them, congratulate them for another national championship. That's exciting. This morning I want to draw our attention to the Word of God, so take your Bible, if you will. I hope you have your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, uh, God have mercy on your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. Uh, come to chapel without your Bible, ought to be some kind of mortal sin, you know. But I hope you have it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to have us look together at what is a very, very important and I think practical portion of God's Word. I want to talk to you this morning on the danger of spiritual privilege. The danger of spiritual privilege. Usually we think of spiritual privilege as something that's all positive, but that's not necessarily the case. Let's read from verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, read a little bit down the chapter here. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. and Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us test the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Now, there you have a very potent and powerful portion of Scripture. It expresses to us the danger of spiritual privilege. It gives us an insight into the whole nation of Israel. A nation that had been privileged with the blessing of God, but a nation that was destroyed. They fell into judgment. And that really is an illustration of what happens if you don't follow chapter 9, verse 27. Look back at the end of chapter 9, verse 27. Paul says, I buffet my body. Not buffet, same spelling, different concept. (laughs) I buffet my body. And make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is saying, I bring my body into control. I control my appetites. I control my body. If I don't do that, I'm liable to fall into the same terrible tragedy that Israel fell in, such as is described in the first 12 verses of chapter 10. Now, the key to this passage is verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest... This is a warning, then, to those of you who think that everything is okay, that everything is the way it ought to be, that you are existing in a very privileged and positive environment, and just when you think that everything is the way it ought to be, you become vulnerable to disaster. The Corinthians were overconfident. They were overconfident, they were privileged people, they had been blessed by God. But they had abused their privileges. They had flaunted their freedom in Christ. They had ignored self-denial and spiritual self-discipline in their lives. And by an undisciplined expression of their freedom in Christ, they were on the edge of disaster. And I always think about that when I think about those of us who live in a privileged environment. And you live in such an environment here at the Master's College. This is a privileged place. You have the opportunity of being under the blessing of God, of being tutored and taught and mentored by godly men and women. You have the opportunity to hear the word of God faithfully taught in classrooms, in chapels, in church services. You have the privilege of studying on your own the things of God as you take Bible classes and as you follow through the patterns of your own personal daily devotions. You have the opportunity for ministry on a personal level with each other. You have the opportunity for outreach in the community. You have the privilege of missions trips and missions conferences, and all of these spiritual privileges that have been granted to you pose a grave danger. For You can become smug and self-confident, and you can begin to test the edges of your freedom in Christ and the liberty which you enjoy here to the point where it can turn out to be a great disaster. This then, for us, is a warning passage which we must heed very carefully. To give us that warning, and the Corinthians as well, Paul goes back to the history of Israel. They were a privileged people. The people of God, they experienced the blessing of God, they experienced the goodness of God, and yet nearly all of them died in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. A whole generation of people forfeited God's blessing because they overindulged themselves. They did not discipline themselves, they did not deny their flesh its cravings, and consequently they forfeited the blessing of God, and in that case they forfeited their lives. Now I want us to go through this passage, and I want it to be a very important reminder for us as well. Let's look first of all at the first five verses, we'll call that the assets, the assets, the pluses in a spiritual environment. Verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. That our fathers, and he's speaking there about the Jews, who in a real sense were the fathers even of the faith of Gentile Corinthians, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The key term here is all. It's repeated, by the way, five times here. Verse 2, all were baptized. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, all drank. The same spiritual drink, those three times added to the two in verse 1. Five times he refers to all, stressing that without exception the Israelites had the blessing of God. Everyone was a beneficiary, everyone in that community, everyone in that environment, everyone who was a part of that nation. Paul delineates the blessings. He says they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. What does it mean? Well, under the cloud simply means that they were under the experience of divine direction. How did God lead the children of Israel through the wilderness? He led them at night by a pillar of fire and he led them during the day by what? By a cloud. They were all under the cloud. What does that mean? They all enjoyed divine direction. They all enjoyed divine leading. Exodus 13, 21 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them. So they experienced the direct leadership of God in their lives and in their community. Then it says, they all passed through the sea. You remember that when they arrived at the edge of the land of Canaan, the Red Sea parted and they all went through on dry ground. That was the basic touchstone for Israel's religion, reminding them of God's marvelous deliverance, how he brought them through the Red Sea. So they not only experienced divine leading, but they experienced divine deliverance. They were led by God, they were delivered by God, called out by God, miraculously delivered from bondage, they were by the power of God, made the people of God, called to serve God under his leading and under his care. Verse 2 says, they were all immersed, would be a better way to translate this, they were all immersed into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. What does this mean? Well, just to make a long story short, all it means is they were immersed into the leadership of Moses. In other words, they were all sort of blended into and identified with their leader, Moses. It's not talking about a water baptism here because they didn't get wet. They walked through on dry land. People who want to attach this to the baptism have a real problem since they came through on dry ground. What it's saying is they were immersed into their leader, They were merged or identified under the leadership of Moses. And what that means is they all became solidarity. They all became one community identified with their leader. Very much like the church. When you become a Christian, you are immersed, the Bible says, by Christ through the agency of the Spirit into the church. That's what being baptized by the Spirit means. It doesn't... I mean, water baptism, and it isn't some esoteric, mystical kind of experience. It simply means you are immersed into or merged into the living church by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's identification. As you, becoming a Christian, are identified with the assembly of the redeemed, so these people, as it were, by coming through the sea, following their great leader Moses, were merged as one delivered community under the leadership of Moses. So it is that they were a community of people under one great leader. Verse 3 then says they all ate the same spiritual food. You remember that the Lord sustained them all with manna from heaven and even uh, on occasion gave them more than that. You remember there was a time when God provided the meat of birds for them. God gave them their spiritual food. These are the privileges. They had divine guidance. They had divine deliverance. They had divine solidarity and leadership, and they had divine provision. God provided all their needs. They were delivered, guided, united, and fed. Verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. And again, this reminds us of the fact that God always provided water, even if he had to provide it out of a rock. God provided for their needs. And then it says in verse 4, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The one who was moving along with them and doing the miracles and making the provision was none other than Jesus Christ. Here you have a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ as the angel of the Lord who is ministering to the people of Israel. The evidence of Christ's presence, the manna and the water. And so they were all in a sense the redeemed people being ministered to by Christ. Christ was the source of their blessing, as he is the source of our blessing. So, summing up their privileges, very simply, through the sea, they experienced emancipation. Under the cloud, they experienced guidance and direction. By being united with Moses, they experienced identity with a new community. And through the manna and the water, they were given sustenance and provision. These were their privileges. Young people, we enjoy the same kind of privileges. God has, by His grace in Christ, emancipated us from the from the bondage of sin and given us deliverance. God has, by the marvelous provision of Christ, given us the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is our guide and our leader, and we receive direction directly from Him and indirectly from the lives of those who lead us, who are spirit filled. God has, in His grace, made us a part of a community of people here in this college, in this campus that is uniquely blessed and that is provided for spiritually, physically, and in every way, socially, economically, as God in His wonderful provision has seen fit to do. We enjoy tremendous privilege here, tremendous freedom. I talk to young people across this country and parents and folks all the time who say I wish that I could be a part of the Master's College or the Master's Seminary. I only wish that I had been able to spend my education there, I wish I could have sent my children there, and so and so it goes. Why? Because we have known great spiritual privilege, great spiritual privilege. Set free from bondage, from the world, led into a rich kind of fellowship, sustained by the word of God, blessed beyond others, we enjoy that privilege. But we go to verse 5, and here comes the shocker. It says in verse 5, as clearly as it could be said, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. With most of them, God was not well pleased. Everything God had done in leading them out of Egypt, everything he had done in providing for them for those 40 years of wandering in the Sinai, everything God had done for them, seemed somehow to make a very small impression on them. It says in numbers 14:16 that because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. You know they all died except for two people, Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that came back from the land and said, "Yes, we can conquer the land in the power of God." Everybody else died. It says they were laid low. What that really means is they were strewn like corpses, dead corpses all over the place. They had been disqualified from entering the land. What disqualified them? They failed to buffet their body and bring it into submission. They failed to exercise spiritual discipline. And Paul saw the tragedy of that and feared the same thing for the Corinthian church. He feared that the Corinthians, even though highly privileged, even though enjoying a very, very great spiritual opportunity, if they did not practice self-denial and self-control, would squander their spiritual privilege, forfeit their tremendous opportunity, and be judged. And I have to say this because it's in my heart. You have, among all the young people of this nation and this world, a great privilege to be here, and it is a tragedy if you waste that privilege. By a failure to be the kind of person God wants you to be in this environment and in this opportunity. It would be better for you to leave and make space for somebody who will use this privilege in a way that would bring honor to God. Well, what were the abuses? Look at verse 6. What did they do that demonstrated their failure? These things are history, but they speak to us. Verse 6. Paul says, now these things happened as examples for us, as models, as figures, as types, as patterns. And what is the modeling here? That if we commit the same sin, we'll have the same consequences. As they forfeited spiritual privilege in this way, so if we behave like they behave, we too will forfeit our spiritual privileges and bring upon ourselves the judgment of God. So these things happened as examples for us. Now, what were their sins? Here they come. I'll give you a list of them. Number one was worldliness. Verse 6, we should not crave evil things as they also craved. We should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Literally, we are not to be longers after evil things. Now, it's amazing when you think about what it was that they were lusting after, what they were longing after. I can give you a little insight by going all the way back to the incident in Numbers 11, which is in the mind of Paul. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 4, it says, And the rabble, the crowd, the mob of Jews in the wilderness, who were among them had greedy desires. They were greedy. And the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. And now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Verse 34, it says, so the name of that place was called Kibrathatava, because there they buried the people who had been greedy. They were greedy. They were lusting. He say, well, what were they lusting after? They were just lusting after the food they had in Egypt. Now, in and of itself, that doesn't sound like a sin. It's certainly not a sin to lust after garlic. I can't imagine anybody doing that, but I suppose it's possible. Certainly, we wouldn't call it a sin. Lusting after fish, garlic, leeks, melons, onions. The idea was not that there was something sinful about those commodities, because there was not. The idea was they wanted what they had in that worldly environment. They were not content with the sparse fare that was part of their separated life. There was a perpetual longing to indulge their flesh in the things of the world that were not necessarily evil, just worldly. Now, young people, there's a tremendous and profound lesson here. You can become so distracted by worldly things that are not in and of themselves wrong that you literally lose your spiritual balance. You can become preoccupied with activities that the world does entertainment, sports, clothes, food, you name it. Entertainment, amusement of all kinds. And this can constitute a form of loving the world that John so directly speaks to in first John chapter two, when he says, If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Somebody says they were sleeping too they were falling out of bed because they were sleeping too close to where they got in. The second sin, not only the sin of worldliness, but the second sin was the sin that's associated with it, the sin of idolatry. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now this really hit the issue in Corinth, because the Corinthians were deeply into idolatry. It was obvious that though they had come to the church, they hadn't divorced themselves completely from their idol worship. The tongues stuff that was going on in chapter 12, 13, and 14 was all associated with idolatry. Ecstatic speech was a part of of Corinthian idolatry. You can go back into ancient history and find out that when they went to to council with, say, the oracle of Delphi, who was a medium woman in that place, that she would speak to them in tongues and this kind of ecstatic gibberish. They were even standing up in some kind of ecstatic gibberish and denying Jesus Christ was Lord. And Paul says to them, that certainly is not of God. They had gotten themselves into all kinds of idolatrous expressions. They were involved in festivals, social events, ceremonies, celebrations of an old religious society that they never separated from. And they were engulfed in forms of idolatry. Same thing had happened to Israel. Israel was still lingering, holding the Egyptian idols close to their heart. You remember when the Jews got out in the wilderness, they, they, they wanted to worship, so they built a golden one. A golden calf. They worshipped the golden calf. They made it their God, as it were. They thought it was a replica of the true God, so they represented the true God in an untrue way. And God had to take their lives. Well, he says here in verse 7, Some of them were idolaters. Don't you be like them. And God had to take their lives. I won't go back to Exodus 32 for time's sake to go through the whole story, but it's an absolutely tragic situation. When it says there, you notice it quotes from, from that chapter, Exodus thirty two nineteen. the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. The word play means to have sexual intercourse. All they did was feast and go into an orgy. Now you're talking about the people of God. These people have come out of Egypt. The Red Sea has parted. They've walked through. God's been leading them with a cloud. God's been feeding them with manna from heaven. God's brought them in solidarity under the leadership of Moses. They saw the whole Egyptian army ground in the sea. Here they are being led to the promised land and they forget so fast. And they involve themselves in this lusting after the world and then in idolatry. And their idolatry involves feasting, eating, drinking. The implication is even drunkenness. And it extends into sexual immorality. In fact, in Exodus 32, 25, it says they took their clothes off to indulge themselves in this form of activity and they paid for it believe me they paid for it God slaughtered them on the spot in fact God killed three thousand men in one day for that kind of activity and the whole nation eventually died in the wilderness God is very serious about spiritual privilege Jesus said to whom much is given much is required and when you have great spiritual privilege you have the potential for great spiritual usefulness but note this you have the potential for great spiritual disaster. When they lusted, God killed them. When they worshiped idols, God killed them. That's how serious a thing it is with God. The third sin that I would draw to your attention is in verse 8, and it's already been introduced to us in verse 7. He says, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. 23,000 fell in one day. You go back and read Numbers 25, and you read the record of that. Tragic situation. They engaged themselves in immorality sexually and God killed 23,000 of them in one day. And here were the Corinthians doing the same thing. Still going back to the temple of Venus, Diana, the temple of Artemis, going back to whatever pagan temples or pagan deities they would worship all throughout that ancient world and engaging in sexual immorality and corrupt kind of orgies, paying homage, in this case, to the goddess Venus. And how can the Corinthians expect to escape the judgment of God if they act the way the Israelites act and experience the judgment of God? Well, I put it to you as simply as Paul does. If you live like they lived, you'll experience what they experienced. God still has the same attitude toward immorality that he had then. And if you conduct yourself in an immoral way, the consequence should be the same. Except by God's mercy, he might withhold death, but the punishment will be severe. The abuses then of spiritual privilege, worldliness, not only worldliness, but that tragic idolatry that causes us to make idols out of things in our world, and then immorality. Let me give you a fourth one in verse 9, and it says, Don't let us, or nor let us, test the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. You can go back to Numbers 21 and read about that. They pushed and pushed And pushed and pushed as far as they could possibly push, wanting to live on the limits of their freedom. They wanted to live on the very edge. They wanted to get as close to sin as possible. How far could they go and God wouldn't snuff out their life? And God did snuff out their lives. As you remember, the serpents came and began to bite them and they were dying all over the place. And the question here is simply this. How far are we going to push God in our liberty? You have tremendous liberty in a place like this. You have tremendous freedom to live. We don't confine you. We don't control you 24 hours a day. We give you the freedom to demonstrate what your spiritual life is really like. Are you going to live as close to the edge as you possibly can? Are you going to live on the fringe as close to abuse as possible? Are you going to take God's grace and run it out to its limit? God's love and run it out to its limit? God's mercy and run it out to its limit? It's so sad. When people say, well, how much can I get away with? And if you're not policing them and looking over their shoulder and staring in their face, and if, if they know you don't know what they're doing, they'll push it to the limit. Listen, it's a bottom line in your spiritual life. What you do when no one knows what you're doing is the measure of your spiritual life. What you do when no one is around is the measure of your spiritual commitment. And people somehow, someway, want to live right on the edge, and yet they're a little afraid to go too far because God might really react negatively, and so they flirt with the very perimeter. They test God's tolerance. And God sent snakes to destroy people who tested His tolerance. Well, let's look at a last sin. This one is kind of practical. It says in verse 10 nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You say, well, now, wait a minute. I can buy the worldliness, the idolatry, the immorality, and testing God, but how did complaining get in here? I mean, that's a, sort of a pastime, isn't it, for most of us? What does the word murmur mean? It means to uh, give audible expression to an unwarranted dissatisfaction. That's a dictionary definition. To give audible expression to an unwarranted dis Satisfaction, complaining about your situation, complaining about this and that and everything imaginable. By the way, Exodus 16 2 says, the whole congregation complained. Some of them lusted for the world, some of them longed for their old idols and stayed attached to them, some of them committed a, a, a immorality, some of them tested God. And it says, some of them grumbled, and then it says in Exodus sixteen two the whole congregation grumbled. So we would, we would assume then that this idea of some in all these uses has to do with a large majority. Grumbling was surely the most common sin because it's the easiest one to commit. You don't need anybody else to do it with. You don't need any system. It just comes right out from inside. By the way, number sixteen says God killed fourteen thousand seven hundred people for complaining. What do you think would happen to the number in our student body if the Lord just killed everybody who complains? Wouldn't it be interesting if God operated the way He used to—that uh, anybody in our student body who uh, anybody in our student body who complains dies; anybody in our student body who commits immorality dies; anyone who tests God, living on the edge of liberty. Drops dead. How big would our student body be? Anybody who uh, has idols in their life, money, career, a, a girl, a guy, sex, whatever, drops dead. Anybody who hankers after the world, drops dead. How many of us would be left? Does God have a right to take our life? He did once. He did once. And he's pretty serious about grumbling. They were destroyed by the destroyer. Who's the destroyer? The judgment angel. We know about Michael and we know about Gabriel, but do you know about destroyer? The rabbis used to call him Mashit, destroyer angel. He slew the firstborn in Egypt. He was ready to slay in the plagues of Jerusalem, 2 Samuel 24. He destroyed the Assyrians in 2 Samuel Chronicles thirty two twenty one destroyer angel, mashith, death to the complainers. Why? Why is it so serious to complain? Here's the bottom line. Because you are challenging God's will for your life. Right? You're saying, I don't like my circumstances. And God is saying, your circumstances are my purpose. Serious sin. Serious sin. There they are, the abuses of spiritual privilege. Worldliness, idolatry, immorality, presumption, complaining. And I'll tell you, young people, we have to be warned about this, who stand in such great privilege here, because we too can be disqualified from usefulness. God may not take our life, but he may take our usefulness, which in some ways is worse. I'd rather go to heaven than to spend the rest of my years here being useless to God. Flirting with the world, with its idols, with its morals or lack of morals, pushing the patience of God to its limit, complaining when you don't get what you want, the way you want it, when you want it, can result in tragedy and, I believe, even death. So the assets and the abuses, but lastly, the admonition. Look at verse 11. And again, he repeats what he said in verse 6. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We're living in the Messianic day. We're living in the last days, as I was saying last night at our church. We are living in the last ages before the return of Jesus Christ. And these things have happened as examples to us so that we are not victimized by the subtle, deceiving illusion That spiritual privilege sometimes brings. Again and again, people who are in a privileged environment feel insulated and protected when in fact you may be more vulnerable than in any other place. Again and again, a fortress is stormed successfully because people think it is safe. It is safe. I remember when I was in Israel and I was talking to some of the Israeli soldiers who were telling me about a fascinating situation that happened in the Six Day War. What had happened was the Arabs had taken the west, the east bank across the Jordan called the Golan Heights. And the Arabs were sitting up on the Golan Heights and they were firing into the villages of Galilee and devastating and destroying the people there. And they felt impregnable. They had set their guns back from the edge of the Golan Heights, that they didn't feel that there was any way they would be vulnerable because the steep grade of the Golan Heights prevented Israeli tanks from coming up those grades and getting to those armed camps. And so in their smug sense of security, they failed to deal with the Jewish ingenuity. And what happened was from all of the farmlands around the Galilee, they brought in huge bulldozers and tractors that could go at elevations, tanks could not, and so they simply set the rear end of the tanks in the front of those tractors, and the tractors pushed the tanks up the grade of the Golan Heights, and to the shock of the Arabs, all of a sudden, dust started coming from the west late one night, and they could see what was happening Ranks of tanks were moving across the Golan Heights that had been pushed up those heights by the tractors and the skip loaders and anything they could get to shove those tanks up those hills. And they literally pushed the Arabs back miles and miles from the edge of the Golan Heights. It was the smug sense of security that made them sure that they could never be attacked in such a way. And when you do not watch and you are not alert, you become vulnerable. In Revelation chapter 3 there's a wonderful little insight uh, verse 3 of Revelation 3 he remembers for the church at Sardis and it says uh, wake up in verse 2 and then in verse 3 it says again wake up or I'll come like a thief and you'll not know what hour I'm going to come and he says to the church at Sardis you better be alert you better wake up that takes them back in their history because Sardis was built on an acropolis that means a high place on a hill and actually it was built on a A jutting spur of rock that just jutted out, and they thought it was impregnable. The the Sardis people thought nobody can reach us. So when Cyrus was besieging Sardis, he offered a reward to any soldier who could find a way up to the city. There was a soldier, history says, by the name of Hieracutes. He was watching one day, and he was watching the soldiers of Sardis around the parapet, the edge of that jutting rock, And one of them dropped his helmet. And the helmet fell off as he bent over and it began to roll down the hill. The soldier then followed his helmet down to retrieve it. And that's all it took. That night he led a band of men up the very path that he had seen the soldier take to find his helmet and destroyed Sardis. It is when you think you stand, says Paul in verse 12, that you are most subject to falling. So young people, my message to you this morning is simply this out of God's word. You've had tremendous spiritual privilege in being here. Please be a steward of that privilege. Don't fall into the tragedy of all tragedies, and that is to be rendered useless to God. I can't think of anything worse, to be honest with you. Then, for a young person to come here, spend three, four years here, five years, six years, however many it takes you, to spend those years here, to have this immense privilege of spiritual training and spiritual opportunity, and at the end of it, go out of here useless to God. Please don't occupy space here. If you're not going to live the kind of life that God can use, then don't take up the space, the time, the energy and all that is involved in endeavoring to build a godly young man, a godly young woman. And having said all that, I know we all fail. We all fail. And we have to come to verse 13 to end this little talk this morning. We have to come to this realization. We are weak, but no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to all of us, we understand that, we understand our weakness, we understand that we can all fall into worldliness. We can all make our idols. We can all be tempted toward immoral things. We can all be drawn, as it were, to test God. We can all fall into grumbling and complaining. But must, but we each must remember that God will be faithful. He will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that we may be able to endure it. God will always make a way. And the temptation may be strong and the difficulty may be great. We have to turn to the provision that God has made for us to escape that temptation. So that we do not forfeit our spiritual privilege. It's so precious, a commodity, to have this privilege. That you must carry it as a treasure given by God's grace. He didn't have to give you this opportunity. It didn't have to. It could have been given to somebody else. It's yours. Use it in a way that will honor God so that when you're done here, we won't find your carcass strewn in the wilderness of uselessness, but we'll find you useful in the service of Christ. Father, we thank you. This-